You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we continue to revisit some of my favorite podcasts from the past in this Millennial Investing Rewind. If you've missed our previous Rewind episodes, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you could pick up with our new episodes next week. Also, if you've been listening for a while, you know about the fee for this show. And if you're new, I want to let you know that we do have a fee for listening to the Millennial Investing and Real Estate 101 podcasts. It's not a monetary fee. I don't want you guys to have to pay me anything to listen to the show. I'm actually happy and proud to be able to bring this to you guys for free and provide all of this content for free. But what we ask for the fee is for you to share this show with one friend. For every episode that you like the show, just share it with one friend. I'd love it if you shared this across social media and told hundreds of people, but you don't have to do that. You can satisfy the fee by just sharing every episode that you like with one person. If an episode makes you think of something in a different way or teaches you something new, just share that episode with a friend. And we've made it easy for you to do that by creating what is called starter packs. So what we've done to make it easy for you guys to pay the fee is created these things called starter packs. We've basically created five or six categories that all of these different episodes could fit into from beginner stock market investing to personal finance and a bunch of other different categories And I've listed out my four to six favorite episodes for that category. So if you want to share the show with somebody, you can tell them to check out the starter packs and they can pick which category and which episodes they want to check out. Or even if you're just looking to find some episodes in a certain category, you could check out those starter packs as well. You can find those by going to theinvestorspodcast.com slash M-I starter packs. That's theinvestorspodcast.com slash MI starter packs. And if you want to connect with me directly, the best place to find me is on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram. My username on both is the Robert Leonard. That's the Robert Leonard. T-H-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-L-E-O-N-A-R-D. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's show, I sit down with a great value investor who has taught me many things over the years, Gary Mishuris. Gary is the managing partner and chief investment officer at Silver Ring Value Partners, professor at Babson's Graduate School of Business, and holds a degree in computer science and economics from MIT. Throughout this episode, Gary provides a ton of little bits of advice and wisdom that are super helpful when investing in the stock market, and especially when implementing a value investing strategy. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you all enjoy it as well. Let's dive in. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation.
Hey everyone, welcome to today's show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I have Gary Mishiris. Welcome to the show, Gary. Hey, thank you for having me. Let's start the conversation by talking about your background. How'd you get to where you are today? I'm an immigrant to this country. I grew up in the former Soviet Union, came to New York when I was a nine or 10, and then came to Boston, which is where I stayed when I went to school at MIT. And that's where I actually got into investing because I happened during the tech bubble, which seems like eons ago, it was about 20 years. And Warren Buffett happened to come to speak on campus at Sloan, which is the business school at MIT. And I was fortunate enough to you know, meander over and listen because at that time I was getting interested in investing. And uh, I thought I was smart. I was studying computer science and economics and that I would be able to figure out how to make money in these tech stocks, which in hindsight, of course, was crazy. But I would say hey, I was 20 and what can they say? You know, it was foolish. And then I went and uh, I heard Buffett speak, and here was this guy talking about long-term, intrinsic value, kind of advantage, predictable industries, all that kind of stuff that I never thought about, which made me realize that I'd been speculating and not investing. And that was really kind of my, you know, I guess, start on the path of learning to be a value investor. And you know, 20 years or so later, I worked at a few firms that started my career at Fidelity Investments, where I was very fortunate to learn from a great value investor a gentleman by the name of Joel Tillinghast, who manages a low-priced stock fund, who is a terrific value investor. He's beaten the market over a quarter century by 4% per year. So he's in a small group of people who've done that well and very rational, disciplined value investor. So I was very fortunate. And then most recently, I was at a big company called Manulife Asset Management. And I decided that basically, it wasn't the money. I was well-paid. I liked the people. It was more that I thought that uh, I couldn't really invest and accomplish the things I wanted as part of a big company that's trying to maximize its fee revenue, which essentially means that you're trying to gather as much assets as possible. And I came to a point in my life where while I grew up poor, I really didn't have the drive to, you know, like extra money wasn't going to get me a big difference in lifestyle. I could drive whatever car I wanted and we still drive with the Highlander because we have three kids and why not? Like if I drive a Maserati, you know, I'll be stuck in the same traffic. It doesn't really make a difference. So my lifestyle wouldn't change. And I would rather, I realized after 15 years of professional investing, I realized I wanted to do it the way I felt was right for me. So this was in 2016. I went to the chief investment officer and I told him, and I wanted to make sure he knew it wasn't him. You know, I liked him and uh, I think he understood and uh, he was very supportive. He actually became an investor in my partnership and Silvering Value Partners, as did a few of my coworkers. But that was kind of the genesis of how I got to where I am today, which is managing a small concentrated value partnership and a tiny little boat in what now is a very turbulent sea. You were studying computer science at MIT. Did you plan on going the investment route or did you have a different plan? You know, I don't think I did initially. Uh, so initially, so my mother is a computer programmer. She, she programs on mainframe computers and uh, she works for UPS, United Parcel Service. And uh, in high school, I went to Stuyvesant High School in New York. I took advanced placement computer science. I was really into programming and I thought that would kind of follow in her footsteps. I also liked economics, but I never really like thought of myself as an investor. Plus in high school, I don't know if you, anyone really knows much about investing. Maybe a few people do, but I didn't. And then uh, I think that part of my interest was piqued by the whole tech bubble phenomenon, which many people don't remember, but it was kind of a crazy time in the markets. And I said, wait a second, everyone's making money. I was poor. 
I had to, you know, work two jobs just to pay for my tuition and room and board, tough the loans I had to take out and help my mom gave me. So I had to work pretty hard to uh, get by. I'm like, wait, people are making this easy money. Let me see if I can figure it out, right? So I didn't intend it. But then as I kind of got sucked into it and heard Buffett speak and I started reading about value investing, I'm like, I actually really like it. And there was also the maybe disillusionment part with computer science. So I was interning at Goldman Sachs in IT since the summer after my high school, actually since my senior year in high school, but then also the high school the summer after my high school year, uh, senior year. And I saw that people were doing basically the same work that I, you know, I was doing as a high school student as full-time employees. And, and I was like, why do I want to spend four years studying computer science in MIT just to do the same kind of work I can do now? And also, to be honest, I was, look, I was an A student uh, at MIT in computer science, which is not certainly bad. But I've met people who are so much better than me at, at computer science that I just knew deep down I wasn't going to be one of the best in the field. And that was not everyone can or should necessarily be. I mean, you need all kinds and uh, to make you know the world go around. But I kind of felt that I would be competing for not to be the best. And I, I thought in investing, I really could be one of the best. And that's part of the reason I pursued it. And part of the other part is I really liked it. And after I heard Buffett speak and I started reading it, it was this fascinating world, which was very different from the more mechanical kind of logical A to B to C world of programming computers. Yeah, it's very different than, like you just said, the logical side of computer programming. If you do X, you get Y. Whereas with the stock market, that's not always the case. It might seem like that's the case, but the actual results always vary. Much of the audience is interested in Warren Buffett-style value investing which is one of the many reasons why I think the audience is going to really enjoy our conversation today. And I know you model much of your investing around the likes of Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett, and Phil Fisher. Of those three that I just mentioned, I'm going to assume that the audience is probably pretty familiar with the first two, but I don't think many have heard of Phil Fisher. So tell us a bit about who Phil Fisher was and why you study him similar to Buffett and Graham. So maybe just even before I answer, and I will answer, kind of give you the framework for how I think about how do you develop your own investment approach? Because I think it's important and kind of goes to part of your question. So I teach a value investing seminar at the local business school here in Boston. And I always tell my students that you want to study the masters, but beyond a certain point, you don't really want to imitate the masters because the strengths and weaknesses that each of us has is going to be different than the strengths or weaknesses that Graham had or the Buffett has or that Fisher had. And so you want to really create a style that really suits your own strengths or weaknesses. So I think it's a good starting point to understand great investors. But ultimately, there are some people out there who say, hey, I'm going to be a cloner. I'm not going to opine as to whether that's right for them, but I'm pretty sure it's not right for me. And that's not how I teach. I teach people try to understand the masters and then use the elements of those styles to build their own approach that uh, suits them the best. So, But to your question, so Phil Fisher, he really is, uh, started investing after World War II, so a bit later than Graham. And he was a bit of a different animal, but yet at the same time, both he and Graham were intrinsic value investors, but in a very different way. So Graham was really trying to figure out situations where mostly based on quantitative financial analysis, a little bit of quality of thinking, but not a lot. He could find businesses that, if they remain somewhat similar to they've, what they've been, are really undervalued. So, an example might be a company has produced on average a dollar of earnings in the past 10 years, and you think qualitatively the future is not going to be too drastically different. Maybe it's a little worse, but not much worse. 
and the stock is trading at five or six dollars. And at that point, you kind of saying, okay, the stock is implying that the earnings power will get cut in half or more, and you think it'll be a lot closer to that dollar, and you buy it, and it goes from five to ten or twelve, and that's it, you're done. You know, you kind of the price to value gap is closed, and you're finding the next investment. Or Graham's famous net nets, right? You're buying a company that, if it were to liquidate, would liquidate for a, a substantial premium to the current price. So maybe you're buying it at 60 or 65% of networking capital or something like that. So that's Graham. Fisher, on the other hand, is trying to understand a business deeply and qualitatively. He's trying to understand competitive advantage, what makes it special, the culture, the management, the growth opportunity. And ultimately, he wants companies that are going to be much, much bigger in 5, 10, 20 years. So he ideally wants to own a very small group of stocks, 5 to 10, 5 to 15, something like that. And these companies are going to be compounding capital. They're going to have amazing reinvestment opportunities, which means that if they're producing free cash flow profits from the business, they have the ability to put that back into their business at very attractive incremental returns. Graham doesn't care about that. I mean, he would acknowledge that that's a nice positive, but he's not willing to pay up the prices that Fisher is. He's not, frankly, interested in doing the in-depth kind of fundamental analysis beyond the numbers that's necessary. And Graham is very widely diversified. So Graham might kind of talks about insecurity analysis and the insurance principle, the idea that, you know what, if you were to find the healthiest person on earth and write them a life insurance policy at what you think is a great premium, you could still do really poorly. They could die tomorrow. And that would be you know, a bad outcome for you if you were investing in that insurance policy. But if you find 10,000 people and write them insurance policies at an attractive premium, the laws of large numbers kicks in and you get a good positive expected return. So he's kind of thinking the same way about investing and that you want to have a large number of investments to have reversion to the mean. Fisher doesn't want reversion to the mean because he's looking for the outliers. He is looking for companies that are so exceptional that maybe there are only 20 or 30 or 40 of them in the world that are going to kind of overcome the financial gravity, if you will, of reversion to the mean and escape from the mean and become 20, 30, 100x their size in 20 years. And so when Fisher executes that style correctly, it looks amazing. You do nothing. You own the same companies. You relax. You don't worry about the markets and come back in 20 years and you have amazing returns. Now, I don't invest like any of these three investors. I think I've learned something from each of them. And I would say that I think the kind of the primary research aspect I think is important. I think that I'm concerned to talk about that more, but today the market is more efficient and there are fewer, you know, outside of these crazy turbulent times, in most normal environments, it's harder and harder with the prevalence of computers to find companies that are mispriced purely based on historical results. Because a lot of times things that are cheap on historical results, there is some problem, some fundamental question, some secular decline or something. And so I think that bringing to bear a more qualitative type of analysis helps you build your own edge, your own competitive advantage that a computer run by Renaissance can't replicate. Well, as a computer run by Renaissance can easily replicate, you know, kind of a analysis of trailing 10, 20 years earnings and so forth. I think that dynamic that you mentioned is super important. And that's one that I actually learned very early on in my investing career. Because when I first started, I thought I could buy undervalued or quote unquote undervalued stocks exclusively based on quantitative data. I thought if the DCF model said that it was undervalued or if it was trading at a low PE, didn't have a ton of debt, that it was undervalued, I thought I could buy it. But in reality, like you said, 
markets are relatively efficient and more efficient these days than they had in the past. And so that didn't mm-hmm. work. I had to find the undervalued companies based on qualitative metrics. So I think that was definitely a great point you made. Now, I learned a lot of what I know from studying Buffett and Graham, but it seems at least to me that as of late, nearly everyone wants to be classified as like a Buffett-style value investor. But what does it really mean to be a value investor? What exactly is value investing? So I think it's funny that you mentioned that everyone wants to be have a Buffett investor. I think it's true, although up until the recent market meltdown, people were starting to question Buffett, saying maybe he lost his touch, maybe what he does isn't as applicable anymore, maybe value investing doesn't work. So I would say for a while, everyone wanted to be like Buffett up until his 10, 15-year performance for Berkshire Hathaway versus the market started to not look as good, and then people started to doubt it, right? But I think at the very high level, the idea is very simple, but it's hard to implement. It's kind of like chess, right? Chess is a game which is easy to understand the concept and the rules, but it's very hard to master. And the idea of intrinsic value investing is that you're thinking of a uh, stock as a partial ownership in a business, and that you're estimating the intrinsic value of what would a private owner pay for the whole uh, for the whole enterprise, and then buying a stock or a bond, you know, with a discount relative to that intrinsic value. So that's the idea. And Graham was an intrinsic value investor. Buffett. Fisher, all of these guys are applying intrinsic value, very high level idea, but they're implementing it in a very different way. So I think that people who are trying to blindly copy Buffett, it actually makes me smile a little bit because they misunderstand Buffett. If you, I've cited Buffett probably as much as almost anyone. And if you see one thing in his behavior is that he is an amazing learning machine. He evolves more than any other investor. And so if you were to start reading his partnership letters from the 50s, up until the most recent Berkshire Hathaway annual letter, you will see a tremendous evolution. I wrote an article for Forbes last year about kind of the evolution of Warren Buffett's process. And you know, if you look at most master level investors, I'm not talking about someone who dabbles, but I'm talking about people who have successful records of more than 10 years, whether it's a Peter Lynch or Graham or whatever, there may be some changes, there's some experiential improvements, but by and large, like their style and their approach is fairly much, very much the same, right? They're perfecting the same thing. And Buffett, the one thing unique, uh, the most unique about Buffett is that he changes. He moves more from a Graham, Graham was his professor and his teacher at Columbia, to a, a little bit more in the direction of Fisher. But it's not, he's not moving to Fisher. He's learning from Fisher and he's incorporating ideas, whether it's from Fisher or from his partner, Charlie Munger, and into his arsenal, coming up with his own framework that's uniquely kind of fitted to his own strengths and weaknesses, to his own circumstances, to the structure, to the size, all of these things. And so I think to me, it's ironic that when people are trying to copy Buffett, you know, clone Buffett, the part they should be cloning is his original thinking and his willingness and ability to evolve and learn as an investor and become better and be able to apply the general concept of intrinsic value investing to many different environments rather than cloning some very static current snapshot of how he does something, which by the way, I run a relatively small value partnership. You know, Buffett's managing hundreds of billions. He can't possibly invest in many of the things that I can. So why should I be trying to clone Buffett in, some, in certain ways? I think the way I should be trying to learn from Buffett is learning how he learns, learning from the ideas and so forth, but then applying them to my own unique context, which I think many people forget to do. Yeah, I think that's absolutely great advice because I think about it the exact same way. I mean, when you think of individual investors, we're not investing billions of dollars like Buffett is. We can invest in different things that he just can't. And if you read back and some of the things he's written, he said that if he had a smaller portfolio, he could probably grow it at what, 50% a year? 
or something yeah, along it's, those it's, lines. It's funny. It's funny you say that. So I think in the last uh, annual meeting, he talked. He finally. He keeps getting asked about it because everyone wants to know how do you compound capital at fifty percent, right? I'm sure you and I would love to know that, right? So he, I think, hinted that there's some. He was talking about literally a million dollars. He said that if my money went up even to ten million, I wouldn't be able to do that anymore. Which made me feel a little bit better because I'm not compounding at fifty percent. So I was like, "Phew, it's not like I'm completely just missing something so obvious. I should be compounding at fifty percent." I think that, however, he would be buying very different things, in my view. I'm not saying that the things he buys are bad, but he's constrained by size. And I think, therefore, when people say, oh, Buffett bought X. Yeah, but what we really want to know is, what would Warren Buffett, if he were managing $100 million, what would he buy now in that scenario? That would be really interesting. But I don't think, A, he really gives it as much thought because that's not his situation, nor would he be willing to share it. So I think we're going to just have to do our own work there. And that's just the way it should be. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. Do you think that there's a way to learn from Buffett's 
smaller holdings to see what he might invest in if he had smaller capital? Or do you think that might not be a good indicator of it? He wouldn't buy a two, three, four hundred million market cap company you know, unless he's buying the whole thing. So if he's, I mean, he owns certain uh, companies in his own account. That's something. But I, I think just the general premise, I think it's not, there's nothing wrong with studying the holdings of other good investors. I think it's a reasonable one of many ways to source ideas. But I think that the more important point is thinking, learning how to think from great investors and then being able to apply those thinking patterns yourself rather than relying on, you know, I mean, I think there's so many articles out there. The Warren Buffett portfolio, follow, you know, these top 10 investors, you know, it's okay, that's fine. You know, but a lot of times they're the victims of their own success. And you know, they, you know, whether it's Warren Buffett or someone, uh, Seth Klarman here in Boston, uh, you know, these are great investors, but they're managing so much money that they can't, you know, and by the way, that's, I'm not saying but one should never buy large companies. I think one should ignore size and focus on other important characteristics, such as the business, the people, the balance sheet, and the price not the market cap. But I would say that the holdings of these very proven, well-known value investors are not indicative of what I think they would do with $100 million necessarily. And the other component of this is if you just follow a super investor blindly, you don't know their thesis and you don't necessarily have the same conviction that they do. So if the stock declines in value, you might not have the conviction to hold it through that, whereas a super investor knows their thesis and they can hold through that. Yeah, all conversely, maybe it's time to sell. I remember reading Joel Greenblatt taught a class at Columbia Business School, and, and he had a guest speaker. I'm not going to say who it is, but it's a well-known value investor. And he came, I think, in 05 or 06 and spoke to the class, and he presented as an example of a value idea, a certain company. And he basically said, it's no-brainer, awesome business, you know, like really sung its praises. And, and Joel introduced this gentleman as this one of the smartest guys I know. He's smarter than me. He's an amazing value investor, proven record. So if you're a student sitting in that class, or if you're someone reading these transcripts, you might look at this and buy it, right? And so the interesting thing is, subsequently to his 06 or something like that pitch, over the next two years, the company went bankrupt in the great financial crisis. And the guy held on all the way into bankruptcy. He made a mistake. By the way, you know, like sometimes people say, well, this is temporary impairment. When, you're, when your big holding goes bankrupt, that's a mistake. Chances are. Now, maybe if you were getting some crazy risk reward, like five to one, and you were saying, I know it can go bankrupt and I'm still willing to buy it because if it doesn't go bankrupt, I'm going to 5x my money. Maybe it's not a mistake. But I think for this guy, the way he presented the company, he never contemplated the possibility of it going bankrupt. And he kind of went down with the ship, probably for behavioral reasons, because he was probably anchored to his thesis. So I think that it might not even have helped you if the guy were giving you updates. I think you always have to think for yourself. And that's what I always tell people. Like you have to think from first principles. You have to think for yourself. When I started out, I was in awe of all these great investors. Mason Hawkins, many, you know, you know, Bill Miller of like me, you know, like all these people who probably are somewhat forgotten to some degree, at least less well known these days. And I remember like anything they bought or anything they pitched would be like immediate, like I'm like looking at it and and then I started, and again, not naming anyone by names, but like there was an old publication called Outstanding Investor Digest, OID, Outstanding Investor Digest. And they did interviews with great value investors in there. And I started reading a pitch by a very well-known value investor on one of the companies that I was following as an analyst. And I read this, his pitch, he doesn't understand the business at all. He's giving kind of high-level sound bites that if you also don't understand the business, sound impressive. But if you actually understand the business, you will know that he doesn't know what he's talking about. And 
you know, I read it and it's funny, like the funny thing is we both end up losing money on that. And that was like, I swore to myself afterwards because I did my own work, but you know, it was partly reassuring. I was a younger analyst, you know, five, six, seven years into my career. Like, oh, I'm on the same boat as this other great investor who also owns this company. And then I, after the experience, I realized that always do your own thinking, always do your own work. And just basically the only weight I give to someone else's investments is like if someone I respect buys something, it goes into the top of my funnel, meaning I will consider it on equal basis with anything else that goes into the funnel. But once it's in the top of the funnel, I don't care if you know the almighty himself is buying the stock. I'm going to use my own criteria, my own process, and I'm going to buy it, not buy it based on my own reasoning, not because someone else is doing anything. So I think as you get better at this, sometimes some of your heroes that you think are unfollowable, these amazing investors, you realize that we're all flawed as humans and your heroes are flawed too. So I want to dive into how you specifically analyze companies. I get a lot of questions about how to analyze individual companies from people who listen to the show and from people who are a part of our Facebook group. And like you mentioned, you teach a value investing seminar at Babson's Business School. So I want to walk through this. Where do you start? What is the first step you take when you're looking for potential investments? So there's two separate components. One is generating ideas of potential candidates. And then the other is how do you do a deep dive into you know, a company once you decide it's worth pursuing. So I'll kind of walk you through both. I use kind of four what I call idea generation streams. And the reason I use the four that I'll describe in a second is because I think they're complementary and that they make sure I don't have big blind spots. So you know, I think everyone to some degree uses screens, but I would I, say that that's the least value-adding way to generate ideas. I use them. And what I specifically screen for is seven-year trailing free cash flow yield, meaning you take the current market cap and you compare it to the average free cash flow the business has generated on the average of the last seven years. The reason I do it that way is twofold. One is you know, free cash screening out companies that don't have a lot of free cash flow also happens to eliminate a lot of frauds. Now, it also eliminates some earlier growth stage companies, but I don't do those anyway. So that's not my circle of competence. So I don't mind kind of the type two error, mirrors of omission, because I'm looking for companies that already have a proven financial record. So, and I think having a seven year period typically captures a full cycle. So it avoids the mistake of having a company that looks cheap on recent results, but those are unsustainable for some reason. So that, that's kind of one of the screening. You know, I have a couple of other screens like net nets and a few other things. Then, Next, I, I like to look at special situations. Now, what's a special situation? I had a friend who, tell me, uh, who told me that every single thing in his portfolio is special, but that's not what I'm talking about here. A special situation is, and Joel Greenblatt wrote a great book uh, called You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. And this is uh, talking about spin-offs, post-bankruptcies, reorganizations. And essentially, it's, these are things or companies where screening doesn't help. And this is exactly why it's a very great complement to screening because a spin-off might only have three years of data and the data might be partially incorrect because it might be burdened with historical costs and no longer applicable or something like that. So it's great because by studying that pool, first of all, you're getting into a pool of companies where computers can't easily tread, number one. And number two, they are usually subject to one of two forces that causes mispricing, which is either neglect for selling. So a spin-off, for example, might be a small company, less attractive division, gets spun off from a big company. That's a big 
portion of an index, but a typical PM gets this tiny distributed stake in this new spinoff and just sells it doesn't, without thinking about it because he had a 1% position. Now he's getting a five basis point position in this new thing. He doesn't want to do the work. He just sells. So whenever someone is selling irrespective of the relation between price and value, that's a good area to hunt for mispricings. So the special situation is the second stream. And the third stream is I have a watch list of a few hundred companies I've identified as being good companies. And whenever there's a price dislocation of any sort in any company, I do I take a deeper look, even if it's not obviously cheap, but these are really good companies globally, maybe three, 400 or so of them. And I know them to varying degrees. I don't know every single one perfectly, but I know enough to say, okay, these are good businesses, good companies. Let me, you know, if something drops 20, 30%, I'm going to dig in a little bit more. And the fourth stream is other good value investors. So that might be looking at filings from you know, well-known value investors, but I would say I would get even more value from talking to less well-known, but good value investors who are managing smaller amounts of assets, because I think a lot of times they're hunting for, they're able to hunt for more unique ideas that some of the bigger value investors can't invest in because of size. So those are the four. Now, what do I do with them once I you know, get them into the top of the funnel? The first thing I try to do is try to kill the idea which is, can I find anything at all that would disqualify this from uh, being a good investment for me, despite any work I might do? Because if I have 100 thing, companies at the top of the funnel, and I then spend all this time on each company, it's too much time. It doesn't work. So let's say balance sheet is too weak. I pass. Let's say, I don't know, there's not enough free cash or relative net income, which to me is a kind of a yellow flag. I'll probably pass. Now, so I accept that I'm going to have mis- many mistakes of omission, and that's okay as long as I minimize the mistakes of commission. Because in the concentrated portfolio, you can, you know, look, if you own 10, 20 investments like I do, and there are 5,000 investments, you can afford to miss many great investments as long as the things that you own do well, right? So you, you're not that worried about mistakes of omission up to a point. Obviously, if you keep missing everything, then you're not going to have to invest. But let's say it didn't get eliminated. Then I like to understand the company's history. So I like to read 10Ks annual letters to shareholders. I like to collect all the historical metrics. I like to read the proxy statement to understand you know, how the management gets compensated and if incentives are aligned. And from there, it really branches into company-specific questions. Sometimes it might be primary research. It's like checking with competitors, suppliers. Sometimes it might not be because maybe the key questions aren't related to that. Uh, because I'm not doing primary research to impress some potential client. Oh, look, I talked to 20 customers. I try to figure out what are the key issues which will answer the question of, what is this business worth? And then I try to spend the vast majority of my time answering those questions. No, it's, it's really company specific, but it might be as simple as assessing, will this company survive? Like right now, I'm not going to mention specific companies because I don't think it's helpful necessarily because the reasons you said, maybe I mentioned a stock and someone buys it and you know, then it goes down and they don't know what to do with it. But like I have a company where if they survive, like I think the stock will at least double, maybe quadruple. So it's like really like balance sheet analysis. It's really security analysis from you know, Ben Graham, doing your work on covenants, doing your work on scenario analysis, what will happen in the recession? Will they be able to service their debt? Yeah, I don't need to do primary research. That is the key question. I have other companies where you know, I've talked to competitors and understanding the culture, the turnaround, are they are employees leaving? Are, they, are you as a competitor seeing resumes flying across the street because their best producers want to leave the company or not? Things of that nature. So it, again, it depends. I really don't have a cookie cutter approach beyond a certain point. I know I want to understand the history of the business, how it got there. I want to understand how the history jives with the historical financial performance of the company. And I want to start to formulate a thesis, which should lead uh, me to have questions bubble up, say, huh, what about this? What about that? What about this threat? 
And that then leads to the rest of the process for each company in terms of trying to answer those questions. So after you've done all of this analysis, at what point do you feel like you've gathered enough information and you've conducted enough research that you're actually comfortable to start a position? I get to the point where I have the historical financials. I've answered the key questions I think are important to estimate the range of intrinsic values. I have then used that to come up with a forecast of future possible values and come up with a range of values. It's always a range, right? Nobody knows exactly what any business is worth, but you can put a, br- a range around worst to best with the base case being the most likely. And after that, it's a, it's a function of does it meet my minimum absolute standards because I'm a absolute value investor, meaning that if it doesn't meet my hurdle rates, even if it's the best thing out there, I'm going to pass and wait for something you know that meets my standards. But then it's also a question of opportunity cost. So you know, if you'd asked me six months ago, for example, I had a lot of cash and there was not enough things beating my you know hurdle rate. So I had a lot of cash, bottom up, not because I was timing the market. Uh, if you ask me now, I am pretty fully invested. That's not to say I think that the market is amazingly attractive, whether it's going to go up or down, I have no idea. It's just that in this dislocation that we're experiencing now, I think a a lot of somewhat irrational price gaps have opened up that I think that I can take advantage of with my work. So I think right now, especially if it's a company I've done work on, I can start a position very quickly. I don't need to redo the work. Maybe I need to recheck the assumptions make sure that the value range hasn't changed. It's for some businesses it has, right? If you have a, a cruise company, for instance, they may go out of business. And this is a tangent, but it's an interesting tangent. It's like who in their wildest dream has imagined the government comes and says, you cannot operate your business. Nobody has run that scenario on any business. Because like people just don't assume that the, you know, there's certain prior assumptions that you know, people say maybe there's a recession, maybe demand declines by a certain amount, by certain some number of quarters or years, but nobody says government comes and shuts you down unless you're a fraud or like killing people or doing something bad. So that if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, people assume that you're allowed to operate as a business. So like will the cruise lines go bankrupt? I don't know. But you cannot argue that their value has not changed. You know, the value has changed and this is, we're not sure necessarily how much and what. Maybe some people are sure or whatnot. So maybe the value has changed a little bit and maybe in three months we're back to cruising and everything is fine. And it's just that even then there's somewhat of a hit, right? Because they, I don't know, they missed out on the free cash flow and they have fixed costs they need to meet. Or maybe people never cruise again. I'm not saying that that's likely, but I'm saying hypothetically, that's the range of maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. So using that as an example, you don't want to blindly buy something based on unchanged value estimate as events develop. But once you've thought about it and updated the value estimate, you have to act. If you're not going to act on your work, then you probably don't have enough conviction in your work and you should work in different companies or do better work in the companies you're working on. But one of my old bosses used to call this watching the tennis game, which is, you know, you're kind of watching the stock go up, down, left, but you're not doing anything, you're just watching. And so at some point, you have to act on your convictions if you feel that you trust yourself. And if you don't trust yourself, then you shouldn't be investing. You know, you should you know, buy an index fund or whatever you know, is appropriate for you. But if you're going to do this, I think that at some point, you're not going to have all the answers. It'll still feel uncomfortable. So that's one of the things I think with, as an investor, you have to get over is that it will feel uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, many good values feel uncomfortable at the time when you buy them because like, if everything feels comfortable, it's probably like, so it might, it might not be undervalued enough. It might be just kind of a disagreement. Okay. Oh, I think it should be 15 times earnings and it's 12. Okay. All right. Great. We're not that good at estimating the future for the kind of relatively small difference to be material enough. But if you are pretty sure that the business will survive even a prolonged downturn, but the market is pricing as if it's going to go bankrupt in the next few years, that's a pretty big gap. 
and you should act. That doesn't mean you put all your net worth in it. Obviously, you need to manage risk, but you should act. So I think to me, once I've gotten a comfortable range of values, I've done the work, I'm ready to act if it meets my standards and if you know, it's in that best opportunity set. Because obviously, even if something is a great investment, if there are 20 others that are better, I'm going to might not include the 21st one in the portfolio. So assuming you're going to act on a position, do you buy your entire position in one trade or do you generally buy into it in small chunks over time? Well, it's interesting because usually everything I buy immediately goes down. You know, I kind of told myself I probably should just stop and like wait three months from my first from the point I've decided to buy anything because I'll save myself a bunch of money. I mean, I have basically position sizing guidelines. So a small position for me is 5%, a medium is 10%, and the large is 15 at cost. And I have parameters such as the quality of the business, the discount from intrinsic value, the downside to the worst case intrinsic value, quality of the balance sheet, and so forth. And the idea there is that to become one of my largest positions, it needs not just to be really undervalued, but also to be an above average business with a safe balance sheet. Because Charlie Munger is really good making simple statements that make sense. His, his idea of inverting, you know, to answer the question, so he's a quote of how do you lose the most money in stock investing is you buy bad businesses uh, run by ma- bad people with weak balance sheets at high prices. So I think that if you were to say, how do you avoid losing money, you try to avoid all those things. So I might be comfortable with a company with a somewhat weak balance sheet for a small position if I've done the work and I think that the risk reward is really good. Maybe I'll I'm right, I get four times my money. And if I'm wrong, I lose it all. I'm okay losing 5%. I don't, I try not to do that, but it's fine. Uh, if it happens, if those was a good expected value investment, but I'm not okay losing 15%. So I think that the larger the position size, the more qualitative criteria kick in to guard me against putting a lot of capital into weak businesses or with, into very weak balance sheet. So then in terms of do I scale in you know, to get to your specific question or not? I think in the past, I've just, if I had available capital and there was extra cash, I would just make it whatever position size was merited. But nowadays I'm scaling in. I'm doing, because you know I have no idea where the bottom is and nobody can find the bottom. I think that the right way to approach such a crazy environment where stocks are up 10% and down 10% and so forth is to act deliberately on your conviction on your work. You don't want to be sitting out and getting frozen. I've invested through two downturns prior to this, so I've, this is not my first rodeo. But you want to go slow because there is no... I mean, let, let me back up. In the two prior downturns I invested in, so I started right before September 11th at Fidelity, and then September 11th happened, we went into a downturn. I've seen pretty big blowups. And I've seen cheap stocks go cheaper and go down some more, and then go down some more, get, become very cheap, and then go down again. And if a lot of times, I think young, kind of naive value investors, they're so eager to apply their art that they go all in too early. They kind of find something that's pretty cheap and they're like, ah, finally. Especially like, think about it. We had an environment where for a few years, it was hard to find meaningful bargains. So it's kind of like a sailor stumbling on shore after a six-month voyage at sea. The first lady might look pretty good, irrespective of what he would think of her. He hadn't been at sea for six months. So you want to make sure you're not going all in on the first cheap stock you see. And so I, that's number one. Number two is, I think that you want to make sure that you have different portions of your portfolio. You don't want to have you know, all stocks, all investments that if there's a quick recovery, yes, you do really, really well. But if there's a prolonged recession, you lose half your money. And by the way, managing risk almost by definition involves trading off the results you would get in one outcome for you know, making sure that 
a more adverse outcome is not as bad as it would have been. So you're taxing the good branches of the future to make sure that the bad branches of the future are not nearly as bad. So I think that let's take a business like you know, Berkshire Hathaway. I'm not saying you should buy it, not, but it's very unlikely to go bankrupt. You know, like, like I would say Berkshire Hathaway might be the last business to go bankrupt of all, right? This, the structure, the insurance, the flow, you know, it's like has a fortress balance sheet. So if you have a company like that, you know, is it going to be the cheapest company ever? It shouldn't be. No, it's not. But the cheapest companies ever in this market might go to zero. So do you have all your whole portfolio in the Berkshire Hathaways of the world? Or do you have your whole portfolio in the companies that are offering you amazing odds, but there is some chance that they'll go bust? And I think that that depends on what you're trying to accomplish and your own you know, approach. But in my case, I'm trying to make sure, look, most of my family's money, the vast majority of it other than retirement money is in the partnership. I invest, I always tell my partners, I'm going to invest partnership money as if it's my own because it is. So I am risk averse. So I, if we have a very quick recovery, I am fine looking like I've underperformed. That's but because I don't want to lose all, all our capital in the case we're in a three-year recession. On the other hand, I'm not afraid to put a portion of our capital in situations where in some crazy severe scenario, they might go bankrupt. But in most other scenarios, we triple, quadruple our money. And as long as that portion is limited in totality, so that even if that happens, the part of the portfolio that is not susceptible to that phenomenon is still the significant majority, and we still do okay. So I think because of those things, I'm kind of moving very deliberately, but gradually now because there's so many opportunities. But in normal times, when there's more capital and ideas, I'll probably just size the position to its appropriate size right away. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures 
slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. So when you're making a decision to buy a company's stock or not, how much do you weigh other potential investment opportunities in comparison to the company you're actually considering? Opportunity cost is something you always have to consider. I also think my attention is finite. You know, I can only, can only research so many companies and have the depth of knowledge that makes me comfortable to invest. You know, I can only find so many bargains. So I think that I want to make sure that I am comparing opportunities to other opportunities. So I think that if I have an investment at 70% of my base case value, let's say, but I find an equally good company that's at 50, I would make the switch. So I think that's what, that would be one of the reasons to sell is to sell something that's moderately undervalued for something that drastically undervalued. So I think I compare opportunities a lot, but I'm not a relative value investor in the sense that I'm not looking at industry and say, I'm going to own some energy companies, irrespective of whether any of them are attractive. I want to find the best one of the bunch. That's an approach that a lot of mutual funds use. And I think that logic is weak. With our argument is something along the lines of, well, people already gave us money to invest in equity. So I have to stay fully invested. So I have to buy the tallest midgets, even if they're still midgets. You know? And I don't think that that's right. I think people give you money to make money by investing in equities. They didn't give you money for you to dumbly invest all in equities, even if prices are uh, attractive. So I think that the approach that many managers use lowers their career risk or their client through a business risk, but it doesn't actually produce the best returns. And I think that that's part of the difference between having your own very small firm versus working for a big firm where the goal is to gather as much assets as possible, is that you can just say, look, if you don't like how I'm doing it, that's fine. Uh, there are many managers out there, but I'm going to be very clear and transparent about what I'm doing and why and how I'm executing my process. And then you can decide if that's right for you. And for me, I think you always want to have both an absolute minimum criteria. So for instance, I don't invest in anything that I don't think would offer me a 12% annualized rate of return. I'm going to be wrong. And when I'm wrong, I'm going to obviously achieve a less than 12% annualized rate of return on certain investments. So that's obvious, but it's not because I intended to. Uh, it's because I made a mistake in a certain case, or maybe the business changed in unforeseen ways or something like that. So therefore, I have both an absolute criteria. And then uh, I also want to make sure that if there's a bunch of 20% annual rates of return available, I don't want to invest in the 12s. I want to invest in the best possible portfolio subject to minimizing the risk of permanent capital loss at the portfolio level. So we couldn't really record a podcast episode right now, which is March 24th, 2020, without at least mentioning the current environment that we're in, which is some are calling the stock market crash of 2020, and it's during the time of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus. How has this impacted the investing landscape? 
what long-term impact do you see this having on stocks? Come on, didn't you see the prices today? The market's up 10%. Bear market is over, man. Come on, new bull market here and now. No, I'm kidding. I have no idea, about, obviously, about whether the new bear market or bull market or whatnot. But I think, I think Buffett, when he was looking for the two people to uh, be his kind of assistants, Tom, Todd and Ted, one of his criteria was to have people who think about risk from first principles and not just by looking at things that have happened before. Because a lot of times, the financial crisis, banks were famous for using stupid risk models. Like They basically looked at the historical volatility and used some kind of a value at risk analysis saying, this is the worst that can happen because that's the worst that has happened. Well, bad things can always happen that have not happened before. I'm just finishing part one of Churchill's biography. This is a, sounds like a non-secular, but talks about World War One. Like the Germans were like shelling Paris. And this was like six months after it was complete peace, everything was great. And if you ask the guy 12 months before the Germans were shelling Paris in, in, the, in the teens over 100 years ago, they would never have guessed that that would be possible. And they, even if a war would start, we, the French have... So things that you think might never happen do happen. So another way of saying that black swans, that life has fat tails and all of that. So I think that one thing we've learned is that a business that has an otherwise strong balance sheet but has a high fixed cost structure can still go out of business if something like this happens. Because normally you would say, well, look, this company has this much cash, this much debt, here are the covenants. But any company that has debt, by the way, I'll even go further. Any company that has fixed costs can go bankrupt even if it's net cash. So I, I, there's a small cap company, micro cap company I'm looking at in Europe. It has no debt net cash, but it's travel related. And if this goes on long enough, it will go bankrupt, even though it was free cash flow positive because they have fixed costs and basically their revenues are going to zero for some period of time. So I think that we have learned to be careful that these things can happen. The other thing is that if you start with very optimistic prices, which I think we did start with, and I've talked about this for a long time, that prices are pretty high, we could potentially have a long way to go. Because right now, people are just reacting to the coronavirus, the shutdown of this, but there are secondary and tertiary effects that we're not sure yet. Nobody knows. Like, how will it affect politics? Like, again, I don't want to get into politics, but imagine this, right? If there are tens of millions of people who were willing to support a self-identified socialist, how many more would be willing to support a person with ideology if there was vast unemployment? And that's uh, not to say who's right, who's bad, who's a good politician or leader. It's that socialism is bad for, for stocks. <laughs> you know, just, you know, I came from former Soviet Union. I have a firsthand opinion. I would say that regardless of your personal opinion, stocks will not be higher if you have a socialist government. And so I think that we have no idea what were the knock-on consequences of something like this. How will it affect supply chains and so forth? So I think that's still developing. What we got a reminder of is that managing risk is very important. So if you were kind of oblivious and you assume that we're never having another recession and you load up on high-flying companies, well, you are in the process of getting your behind handed to you on the plate because, by the way, I think in the process is as far as I'll go. I think you can infer from that that I don't think we're done, you know, given where we started and given where we are. And I think there's still a number of high-flying companies that are still trading at very optimistic valuations despite this because people hasn't fully sunk in. And I've, again, this is the difference, I think, between reading about past financial recessions and market sell-offs and actually living through them. Things go a lot lower than you think. And it's weird, unfortunately, at the beginning of period where, at least for some period of time, expectations will be missed. And Wall Street isn't really asking what a business is worth. 
Wall Street is asking what happens next. Whether it's what will the guidance be for next year? Will they meet the quarterly estimates? You know, or whatever. Or even will they serve? Will they meet their covenants? Right, whatever. But it's always what happens next. If you listen to company conference calls, it's what happens next. And we already know some what happens next, but it it just doesn't sink in until a company. Right now, everyone's pulling guidance, and it's just this big uncertainty. What happens next is companies are going to, many of them anyway, going to report and say we have terrible results. Okay, well, people expect that for a quarter. What happens when they report that the following quarter? Even if, even if the look, the best case, the range of outcomes is this. Best case is we kick this thing's butt in a month or two, and we start rebuilding. But even then, you still have a lot of people who lost their jobs. You still have lost income and a multiplier effect of that. And we need to recover from that over some period of time. The worst case is it takes us a lot longer, and we are in a multi-year recession. So that's the range. And I think it's unclear where we are along that range. And frankly, I'm a bottom-up investor, so I don't think that much about it. But I'm cognizant as far as choosing what kind of companies to invest in, also to what degree, how to structure the portfolio. I'm cognizant this can be pretty darn bad, but also I'm cognizant that they're pretty amazing values. And so I'm trying to balance that, and that's why I'm kind of managing the risk. And I have a portfolio that I think. Will do at least okay, and it's my personal belief. I don't the futures are known in almost any environment, and pretty well in many environments, or at least the most likely environments. But it will never do as well as someone who just bets it all on black and says, "I'm going to bet on this one outcome," because I I just don't know the future, and because you don't know the future, you have to come up with a portfolio that does well across many possible futures. You mentioned that you're a bottom-up investor, and I know Warren Buffett is known for saying that he doesn't spend much time focusing on the macro environment. Rather, he just focuses on buying wonderful companies at a fair price. How much time do you spend focusing on macro versus analyzing individual companies? Very little, with the one exception that I'm cognizant of where we are in the cycle. And what I mean by that is, if we're well past mid-cycle, meaning we're close to the peak than to any other part. I'm going to be highly skeptical of buying cyclical companies because I started Fidelity as a cyclical analyst covering specialty chemicals, and I remember being the young, stupid, uh, naive guy going to experienced portfolio managers and saying, "Oh, I know where things are getting worse, but it's already pricing it in the stocks too cheap," and then it goes down 50%. And I had these couple of these gut wrenching experiences. I've written about some of them, and it's like that's how you learn. You know, it's hard to learn from reading. It's Easier to learn from actually doing. So, I mean, I think that you want to be aware. So, I'm highly suspicious of turnarounds when we're near the peak of the cycle because turnarounds do much worse. They're really hard, and they do much even worse when you're starting in the scenario where any moment the cycle might turn, you have the wind in your face. So, I don't time the market. I don't worry about that kind of stuff. But I am highly skeptical, like of cyclicals near the peak. Conversely. I'm much more interested in looking for potential ideas among cyclically beaten up names. Once there's blood in the street, so to speak, and there's been a number of quarters of missed expectations, and the cycle is you know unfolding, and everyone is worried that things it's we don't know when things will get better. That's perfect for me. I think it guides a little bit about where I hunt for ideas. But when I build my valuation models, I assume a recession is going to happen. And if you ever do a DCF, you would realize that whether a recession happens in year five or year two. It changes the value with maybe five to ten percent max. So the value range doesn't change a ton based on when the recession comes. I always assume one will because one always does. And I think I'm ready. I think my companies that I'm investing in, by and large, should be ready for a recession. I can always be wrong because there's a difference between a recession and a Great Depression. But I also think we as a society has have learned a bit since the Great Depression in terms of what not to do. We're not going to contract credit. 
that make things even worse. I think I think we learned from the financial crisis in terms of securing the banking system and having safe balance sheets and making sure the lending happens. So I think that never say never, but I don't think the odds of a 1930s type event are very high. They're not zero, but they're not very high. But the odds of a severe recession are not low. And so I think that I'm still being highly hesitant of very cyclical businesses because I just I'd rather see the pain first and invest after the stocks have been completely decimated rather than be too early, which in a cyclical business frequently is the same as being wrong because these are not businesses that are compounders like Phil Fisher. These are businesses where you buy them for 0.5x with the idea that they're worth X and you're going to double your money over two, three years. Well, if you buy them at 0.7x and then it takes four years, then your Kager, your IRR is not that great. So I think I'd rather miss some of the upside and rather just get to the point where there's complete fear and panic, which we're seeing in some names, at least we're starting to see. And then the top-down stuff only guides where to fish. And I usually like to fish where there's distress, where there's pain, where there is suffering. I know that makes me sound like a bad individual who enjoys like the suffering of others. I don't think of myself as a good person, but as an investor, I think you want to look to where there's neglect or selling and distress and fear. And by the way, one of the biggest advantages a value investor has is a long time horizon. And I think that it's easy to apply when everyone is asking, when will the cycle turn and you don't care and you're willing to be early enough in front of that, but once the price is distressed enough. Well, Buffett has that quote that says, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. And a lot of people think about that as the market overall, but that might be specific companies. It might be specific industries. It can be all these opportunities that a lot of people are being too fearful of, like you mentioned. And that's a good opportunity where you could be greedy and and make a, a good return. Yeah, no, I think that right now we have stocks that have been really decimated, but they're really heavily related to travel or maybe retail. Basically, they're related to people going out. And I think a lot of other stocks have declined, but they're not at deep bargain levels yet. Some, a few are. We're not at a level where bottom up, I'm seeing every single stock deeply, deeply mispriced. And by the way, I mean, think about it. We had a very strong stock market performance you know, for many years. Affiliations were high, and now we're down 20, 30% off of those peaks. There's some dispersion around there because obviously some stocks are more, you know, decline of more than that. But these are not trough levels of valuation for the average company. So I think that the right posture for me, at least, is to be selectively aggressive, but cognizant that the fundamentals are challenging and that there's a good chance of even better bargains. And that's what I'm trying to balance by my prior answer to your question, by kind of scaling into positions rather than jumping in with both feet. What is the best way for a value investor to deal with the psychological or emotional test they have when they analyze a company? They determine its intrinsic value, then they buy it, and it goes down in price. How can investors build enough conviction to hold through these times if they believe their thesis is still intact? I think part of it is having the right degree of concentration for your own temperament. And that goes to my earlier point that there's no one right approach. You have to know yourself. So like, you have to have position sizes that you can sleep with. And if that means you can have 20% of an idea, great. If that means it's too great. So I think that you have to, at the risk of sounding like I'm gambling, which I'm not, it's like in poker. I don't know if you ever play poker, but poker is another situation where you're making decisions under uncertainty. And the last thing you want to do is think about the dollars at the poker table. You want to think about chips as chips. 
and expect the values rationally. So if you're playing in a poker game and you all of a sudden realize, oh, gee, that's a $5,000 bet. That's a lot of money. Just play the lower stakes game. And which what that translates into investing is have more investments. If that makes you so uncomfortable, you can't be rational. Because in an environment like this, temperament is far, far more important than you. You can be a decent but not great analyst, but have amazing like Balkan commanded data from Star Trek type uh, temperament and just be uber rational. And you would be the guy who is super smart and is an amazing analyst, but can't pull the trigger on anything <laughs> because he's frozen. So this is not about being the smartest guy or figuring out the cleverest business model. It's just you have to execute in your process. So I think one of the things you have to do is you have to force yourself to act on your process. And that's one of the reasons I've written down my process in my owner's manual. I shared it with all my investors, partly for me though, because I judge myself on how well am I following the process. And yes, there's room for the process to evolve. Now, you don't want to say, well, I wrote this process, it's never going to change. But now is not the time to change it. Because when you're changing the process in the middle of a crisis like this, just another excuse for not acting on, on your analytical convictions. So right now, it's time to say, well, I came into this with this process. It's the best I've gotten. And I know I think it's pretty good for me. You know, At least I'm not saying that it's good or bad. I think for me, it's pretty good. I've worked on it for 20 years. And I'm going to follow through on it. And I'm going to judge myself, how well did I stick to it? And I'm going to say this to all the people who are listening now. You're going to judge yourself, or you should judge yourself many years from now, looking back, based on how well did you act on your analytical insights? Now, did you panic? Did you follow the herd? Or did you say, okay, my process says I should buy it here? I did. Now, if you don't have a process that's robust enough, then don't, don't invest. No, then, then you're just speculating and you're going to get blown off your positions because if you're just using social proof, so today the market was up 10%, you feel relief? Who cares? I mean, tomorrow might be down 20%. There's no, the situation didn't get 10% better just because a bunch of computers and quant traders decided to bid up the market, nor is it, would it have been worse if it's, you have to think for yourself. And then you have to derive validation, not from the opinion of others, but from cold logic, the facts and analysis, and then just follow through. So I think you have to follow through in a three, four, five years from now, when you look back on this, if you haven't followed through, you'll be ashamed. And if you have followed through to the best of your ability in your process at this time, I think you will and you should be proud. And I think what you tell should tell your present day self is, hey, I'm going to make myself in three, five years proud through the decisions and the quality of the decisions I'm making. I'm not going to worry if I buy a stock and it goes down 20%. That's going to happen. That's okay. Was my logic sound? Did I have a good reason? My risk management makes sense. Was I speculating or was I investing? Stay rational, invest based on your process. And I think that over time, it'll work out. What is the biggest or most common mistake you see new value investors make? And how can listeners of this show avoid that same mistake? I would say it's two. I mean, one, I would say it's one of the things I said earlier, which is they get involved too early in too big a size. And by the time the stock becomes a real bargain, they are mentally exhausted. You know, they buy it up. They think something is worth 100. They buy at 70. Then they back up the truck at 60. And then the stock goes to 50. And then they're, they're holding on saying, oh, this is temporary. And then they see 40. And now they're mentally, they just, they don't know where to look. They don't know if they're right. They don't know if 100 was right anymore. They just, they're lost. So I think that's where it might be better to go a little slower. As I said earlier, you know, everything I buy goes down anyway. So <laughs> what's the rush? Uh, so I think not getting too trigger happy you know, as soon as something gets just a bit cheap and going too big too soon. I would say the other thing is underestimating quality and intrinsic the quality of characteristics of the business and the management team. So like right now, there's a bunch of management teams that are going to do the standard thing. 
They're going to not do any buyback. They're going to buy back debt, even if they shouldn't. But they're going to be a small group of really good capital allocators who are going to use this time of distress to snap up good assets at really cheap prices. So quality is going to matter. There's also going to be businesses that are just ironclad no matter what. And then you don't have to worry about them. And there are going to be a lot of companies where if they were weak businesses to begin with, as Buffett likes to say, you know, the rising tide kind of hides who's swimming naked. And then when the tide goes out, you see who doesn't have any speedos on. So you're going to see business models that looked like they were decent in the bull market that we had up until now. And you're going to realize that they weren't that good as, as businesses. And so I think making sure you have a qualitative analysis done, that you're not as a young or beginning value investor just focused on, oh, this is an eight times earnings. Some of the biggest losses people have had were started eight times earnings, and then they went to 25 times earnings, not because the price went up, but because the earnings imploded, and eventually they became zeros. I guess a good checklist item would be, what positive can I say about this investment if I didn't rely on valuation ratios? Like, what can I say other than it's cheap? If your thesis is cheap, okay, and I'm not saying it's cheap is not a good thing. It's just that if that's the only thing, try to look for better ideas where it's cheap and it's a great business, or, or at least it's a good business, or it's cheap and I have rock solid downside protection because they have these excess assets they could sell even if the core business you know, is not as good as I think or implodes, you know, something else. So I think that you can be picky in an environment where there's a lot of irrational selling, which we have entered in. And it's good. that environment, in my experience, has never happened for like 10 days and it stops. It's possible. But once you enter that kind of mindset, I think there's going to be more opportunities. So don't worry about missing out on things, but rather be really sure that you're comfortable both with the price you pay and with the quality of what you're buying in this environment. And then go out and actually follow through. Don't just look at it. But once you have that, then actually act. I have two podcasts. I have both this one that we're talking on, Millennial Investing, which is all about stock investing. And then I also have another one about real estate investing. And one of the big things that I always try to push across to the listeners is that you need to take action. And so I love that you've mentioned that multiple times throughout this episode, because I think that is is such a key point of it. That's such a big factor of success is actually going out there, taking action on everything that they've learned throughout this episode. I think that otherwise this becomes, you know, investing is a contact sport. You can't, it's not an armchair enough. Because look, when I teach people, I tell them that having a paper portfolio on Yahoo Finance is useless because it takes out the most important element, which is can you stomach the mental pressure? Everyone, after some training, knows what they should do, more or less, some basic degree. But I have friends who are like under their desk crying about their underperformance. And I have people who are grilling their teeth, staying rational, even if they're mark-to-market results right, make them look like idiots. They're just, they just have stamina. They have staying power. And that's what matters in the kind of environment. It's not how smart you are. It's can you keep an even keel, maintain your temperament, and just act rationally. I could probably go on for hours talking about this stuff. I'm super passionate about it. I love learning about it. And I'm sure the audience is going to enjoy this conversation as well. So I'll definitely have to have you back on the show soon. Where can those listening to the show today go to learn more about you and connect with you? So I have a site called behavioralvalueinvestor.com where I publish articles about once a month. I have a YouTube channel under my name and my company's website is Silver Ring Value Partners. You know, There's a contact email there as well. I'm always happy to connect and feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I am pretty active on LinkedIn. I try to post something hopefully of value to someone most days. We'd be happy to get in touch that way. I'll be sure to put a link to all those different resources that Gary just mentioned in the show notes so you guys can go connect with him further and read his material. 
I'll also put links to various different resources and books that relate to the topics that we talked about throughout the episode today. So you can go read up on those further if you're interested in doing so. Gary, thanks so much for your time. Hey, thank you. Really appreciate it. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.